Hello and welcome to another Tap Talk HR podcast. Today I'm delighted to have with me Karen Eber. Karen has just released a new book around the psychology behind storytelling called The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories That Inform, Influence and Inspire. Hi Karen, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. So Karen, do you want to start by just giving us a, a sense of an overview of the book? I'm sure you put so much passion and energy into it, so you're, you're bubbling to tell us about it. I am, actually. Uh, one of my friends said, you worked really hard on this book more than most people do. And I thought, well, of course I did. Uh, I wrote this because I want to make storytelling accessible. I've spent my career helping Fortune 500 companies and working in them and have seen so many people that are afraid to use stories or avoid using them because they're not sure where they're going to find a story or they think they have to tell talk about data and not tell a story. And they don't recognize that stories actually do engage more of your brain. And there are certain things you can put in your stories to make sure that's happening. So the book takes you through the process of understanding the science of storytelling and more importantly, what to do with that in your stories, and then walks you through how you find ideas, how you tailor them for each audience, how you build out a basic story structure, and then add on all those different things that are going to engage the brain and play with them to make sure it's as impactful as possible. It also goes through storytelling with data, navigating the vulnerability of storytelling, making sure your stories don't manipulate the common mistakes of storytelling. And one of my favorite things is that chapters end with these interview vignettes of different storytellers. So uh, the TED Radio Hour podcast host and executive producer of The Moth, um, a founder of Sundance Institute, people that tell stories in very different ways. You get to hear their approaches and hear stories from them as if you were seated next to them at a dinner party. I mean, that's fantastic. And, and it's interesting there because you, you, you talk about storytelling at dinner parties. And I, and I think it's such a, a natural human state, isn't it, actually? Um, telling stories, whenever we get an opportunity, whenever I, I, I meet a relation, they're always telling me a story and everything. Yet, one of your first comments there was, in business, we're afraid of telling stories. Do you want to expand on that? Why, why do you think that is, really? When we're with friends, we're in a different relaxed state. We're not thinking, are they going to be judging me for this story? We're thinking, I can't wait to tell you about this funny thing that just happened to me. When we're in a business setting, though, we start to feel that vulnerability of, well, gosh, no one asked me to tell a story. So do I even have permission to tell one? And what story is going to be meaningful? And I have to make sure I'm communicating these data pieces that we've collected. And so it gets more convoluted and it makes the stakes feel higher. And often, and, and I see so often people will spend hours putting together a set of, of PowerPoint slides or content they're going to present and they spend maybe five minutes thinking about what they're going to say. And that doesn't leave you enough time to tell a story. You do need to flip that of think about who are you talking to and why are you talking to them? What do you want to have happen? And use that as a starting point for what you want to share, what stories you want to tell, and then figure out what visual aids you need to support it. So it's a combination of it just feels more convoluted and people aren't sure the steps to take. Yeah, and, and I suppose there's a bit of an art to storytelling, and and 
I, I speak to senior leaders and, and they're becoming more aware that the concept of storytelling is something that they should be doing. Uh, maybe because they read it in the Harvard Business Review or any other publication you can mention. But, but actually, you, you mentioned about the science of storytelling uh, as well. So what is it that actually makes storytelling work inside of the workplace? There's many, many pieces. A few of them to get started with is that when you're just listening to someone in a meeting or if you were in university or you are listening to some type of lecture, your brain is just translating those words into meaning. There's a small space in your brain about the size of a walnut called uh, Wernicke's area that truly takes the words that you're reading or hearing and converts them into understanding. And that's all that's engaged in your brain. It's a small area the size of a walnut. You're not committing it to memory. You're not interacting with it. It's true language processing. But when you start telling a story, you start engaging the whole brain in different ways from the way you're structuring the story, the words you're using, how you're describing things that engage the senses. And from a real estate perspective, you go from something the size of a walnut to something that is encompassing your entire brain and you already have more engagement. When you're telling that story, you're also creating what they call neural coupling, which is that the person listening to the story or reading the story has the same brain activity as the person telling the story. They've put people in MRI machines and had people either tell stories or listen to stories. And what they found is the neural activity was the same. It didn't matter if you were listening to the story on a different day, your brain lights up as though you are a character in that story or you're in it, which is why we're watching the movies like Rear Window and uh, we're getting our heart racing because we see that the the evil neighbor is coming back and we're afraid like what's going to happen to Grace Kelly in the apartment. Our brains have us feel like we are the characters in the story. And so not only are you getting more neural activity, but you are getting this empathy that's happening. And the more empathy you have, the more the neurochemical oxytocin is released in your brain. And this is that chemical that happens in moments of bonding. You can't will it. You can't command it. It only happens when you genuinely feel empathy with someone or a connection toward them. The more empathy you have, the more oxytocin that's released. And the more oxytocin that's released, the more increase in trust you have to the toward the person telling the story. So they've done all these different experiments playing with how people hear stories and, and what they do with them. And they found that the more compelling the story, the more immersed that person is and the more trust they felt towards the storyteller, which is why as a leader, this is such a critical skill because whether you are navigating change or you are trying to persuade people to, to grow or take on a challenge or just have confidence in what you're doing you need them to have trust and storytelling is a way to help build that. Because what's interesting is that oxytocin, it sends this silent signal to the brain of, I trust this person, like this person's safe to be around. So by telling a story, all of these things can be happening that leave you as the listener or the reader completely changed as a result and feeling more closely bonded or more trusting of that person sharing the story. And, and that's fascinating. I, I have to say, before we carry on, we were talking before we started the podcast about the fact I watched Rear Window last weekend uh, at the cinema. And, uh, there are many other films out there which also have bonding in them. 
Um, so, but that, that thought of, uh, of trust, I mean, that's so critical, isn't it, at the moment? We talk about that quite a lot at the moment in, in our how we can lead people, we need to build trust. But there, what we're saying, storytelling is making this almost subconscious connection between humans, which the, the byproduct is trust. And I'm thinking of Patrick Lencioni's work of the absence of trust, and that therefore you get commitment and you get accountability towards your own input into the organization. So it's great to see that line of sight between storytelling and actually the impact it has, but also how it does it as well. Because I think that's a bit sometimes we miss out. We just tell our leaders, you need to do storytelling, but we don't say why. Uh, and in that why is super important. So yeah, and I'd love to build on that because yeah. you do need storytelling, but it's not enough to tell a story. I groan every time I see someone say, we're hardwired for stories. Like we are not. We have all sat through enough terrible stories for that not to be true. Because if you were hardwired for stories, every story you heard would be captivating. And that's just not true. We are as hardwired for stories as we are hardwired to run a marathon. Like the physical components are there, but if you don't train them and engage them in certain ways, it is miserable. And so while storytelling is a great skill and it can do all of these things, the way you tell one is going to make a difference in the experience of it. And, and is there, uh, are there a certain things that you would recommend if someone was 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 going on this uh, journey of learning storytelling. What, what would be your top three things that you would say, this is how best to tell a story? So many layers to that. Let me give you some principles and then we can talk about some specifics. Um, I, I have this in the foundation of the book because it's specifically important to why it's important the way you tell a story. I have what I call the five factory settings of the brain. And these describe, these are like principles that describe how your brain is going to respond to information and communication and stories. And more importantly, how do you think about them when you're building a story to make sure it is really engaging the brain? So a couple of them are, um, the first one is that your brain is lazy if you think about the days that you come home from work and you immediately think, I don't want to think, I don't want to have to make decisions. I just am going to turn on this show or this movie that I've watched 17 times because it's comfortable and I do not have to think. It's because your brain is lazy or the moments in meetings where you drift off and stop listening because you know what the person is going to say or it's not engaging enough. What happens there in these moments is that our brain uses the most calories out of any organ in our body. It uses 20%. And it's using those calories to make predictions that help us stay alive from keeping us out of danger to how do we need to move our body? Our brain's goal is always to make predictions because if it has to react, if it's on the back foot reacting, it costs more calories. It's more of an energy drain. So our brain is always trying to guess and make these predictions because the faster it does, the faster it can conserve calories. Never wants to go bankrupt of calories because if you go bankrupt of calories, you're no longer alive, which is not a good thing. So your brain looks for these moments for where can I conserve some calories? Where can I just step back? Cause I already know what's going to happen or I just don't care. 
And what that means in a story is that I, I talked to a neuroscientist that said, people are either going to listen to or read what you say, or they're going to go watch cat videos. And you are constantly fighting. How do I keep the brain out of lazy mode? How do I put in specific details that's going to catch its attention? How do I put in unexpected events that make the brain say, wait a minute, this is not where we thought we were going. So that's one of them where you start to recognize this is part of why it's not enough to tell a story the way you do makes a difference. Another one pairs really well with that is that we make these assumptions. Our brain hates for things to be incomplete because if it's incomplete, it's this warning sign of we may have to overspend in calories and that's dangerous. We would much rather make assumptions and guess what this is. And if we have to course correct, okay. But this is why we guess the endings of movies and books and someone starts speaking and you guess what they're going to say, or you're listening to a story and you guess where it's going to go. When you're telling a story, sometimes you want to lean into those assumptions because assumptions are what we know. They're based on our experiences. And when you can lean into those, it helps form this image in our brains without requiring any effort and very little calories. But sometimes we want to challenge those assumptions and slow them down and, and make it harder for people to guess where things are going. And so you can start to see just with these two, you have these different levers and choices that you can think about as you're constructing your story to see how am I really optimizing the brain in this story to make sure that it's engaged throughout as we go. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, this is fascinating from my point of view, because if you look at basic storytelling uh, 101 training, it's like, oh, here's a hero's journey story, which means you can't watch anything from Hollywood after you've learned how that story works, because you feel like you've been duped uh, for the last hundred years with Hollywood films. And there's different uh, kind of uh, models of, of stories. But what you're saying here is, is actually it's more nuanced than that. It's um, you have to really tap into people. And I love your bit about you're fighting against the cat video um, because I, I, I really resonate with that. And especially since uh, I suppose the, the, the moves that we've had since the pandemic of more towards COVID working for a lot of office space employees are now working at home more. So w what's the role of storytelling in this kind of hybrid world when you're, have, you're not physically in front of people uh, as much? And how do you fight against the, the cat video on the other screen? Yeah. And let me, before I answer that, let me go back to what you said before this, which is that there is this formula for stories, particularly Hollywood stories. So there is one really popular format, which is called the hero's journey, which is the foundation for star Wars movies. And many of these really big films that is a, a fairly formulaic process of certain things happen in these movies. I am not a fan of that for your everyday person, because it forces your story into one specific set of facts and events, and it unfolds the same way every time. And that is not life. These stories have like a guide who comes down in the right moment and bestows knowledge on you that you need. We don't always have that. These stories are about people that become heroes because they solve these amazing things. I make 
many mistakes. And those are far more interesting stories than a hero. And so where I want to go in teaching people this is give them a basic story structure that they can use in any setting. And then they get to choose what pieces they're pulling on in terms of the sequencing and the details to make sure it's the most meaningful. The challenge with some of these other structures are that People in business will sit down and try to use them, but they aren't quite sure how to back their story into it and they don't have all the pieces and then they abandon it. And so you're not writing a piece of cinema, you're trying to land an idea on a meeting. And that is so much more um, helpful, I think. I do need you to rush, refresh my thinking on the the second question though. <laughs> no, and, and that's really good actually, because. Um, uh, I, I think it comes back to almost my, my first question I was saying about how uh, where actually people are, are, are kind of afraid from going away from facts and figures and storytelling. And, and that's probably because we say, this is how to do the story. This is the hero's journey. And people try it and they fail miserably the first time. And therefore, they don't want to put themselves out there. Because quite often when we're telling a story, we're at the front of the room, either virtually or physically, and everyone's attention is on us. And if we get something wrong, we're always fearful to go backwards. So it's great to hear that actually it's more about building blocks. Yeah. My question was around how do you fight the cat videos? Yes. So in the world of, of hybrid working, what what what's the role of storytelling, I suppose, now and in the future? Because I, I see it as more people are realizing it might be an important thing as your people become dispersed. But what's your take on the world of hybrid working and storytelling? It is such a great way to create connections, especially if you are not going to be coming together physically for any offsite or anything like that. It's something that has us build empathy for each other. So if you have a newly formed team or a team that even has conflict, the more you can learn about each other and your experiences or even taking apart the work that you're doing and, and having someone share the story through that, we just gain so much more understanding and empathy. You know, I had someone who was a colleague of mine that we didn't have a moment or a fight um, and we didn't like dislike each other, but we didn't like each other. We never worked together and we kind of avoided it, but there wasn't any reason for it. And we did happen to be in person at a team dinner and sat next to each other and started to learn about each other's professional paths and realize how many similarities we had and realize how many misconceptions we had about each other because we had to step out of the day-to-day -day and have a different conversation. Storytelling is so key in creating these connections and understanding, which is about how work gets done. The bigger challenge is that it feels like the thing we always want to push off the agenda because we only have so much time on the team meeting. And so we're going to avoid this. So it's wonderful when you have these offsite meetings and team retreats, because it's a little bit more expansive agenda and time. But when you don't have that, it's something you do need to bring in, not just let me tell you about Karen and who she is, but maybe I share a story about a, a recent win that I had or a challenge that I had, or we have a standing item where we talk about mistakes on the team and what we learned from them. When you start to do this, it creates the neural chemical reaction, but more importantly, it creates group learning where as a team, you're now thinking about how do we want to handle this? What might we want to do different? Or people are listening and they hear someone share their experiences. And the next time they encounter it, they are more likely to have an informed decision. 
So I'm thinking about words like uh, vulnerability, authenticity, when I think of leadership and everything. And so maybe storytelling is a way to improve your level of authenticity as a leader, because actually telling people where things think go as well and what you learned from it might be as useful as a story where everything went perfectly, because none of our minds are perfect, are they? Even approachability. I worked with a leader who is so painfully awkward, so awkward. And he would come into every meeting with an agenda and just jump right in because he was trying to be prepared and respect everyone's time, which is great, except no one felt like he was approachable. And when someone doesn't feel approachable, they're going to be less likely to raise a concern or a question. And you just kind of feel like you're sitting up straight in school trying not to get in trouble. And someone coached this person, you need to start sharing some stories. It doesn't need to be anything private, but the more you can share like a personal anecdote or start with a story, the more relatable you're going to be. And it's going to create a different shift in the meeting. And so he started, he had like a habit you could almost see in his head. He'd start off every meeting, checking the box of like, oh, my wife and I tried this restaurant this weekend. And he would just tell a little anecdote that had nothing to do with the meeting, nothing to do with anyone there, but he became more human and it completely changed the interaction. He was still awkward, but he felt approachable and you felt like, okay, he, he, he's trying. Like when someone makes an effort to be vulnerable like that, it sends this almost silent signal of like, oh, they, they trust me enough to do this. So they feel comfortable enough to me to do this. And we have a natural response back in return. And, and that's interesting, isn't it? Because I think in the world of hybrid working where you don't see each other as much uh, physically, and it does seem that the saying, the tail wags the dog, as in the facts and the figures drive the interactions. Whereas if I go back to when I used to be full-time in an office, it, all that chitter-chatter that you had walking to the coffee machine and walking back again and everything their little moments of storytelling, which then builds that trust between people. And and maybe it's not just storytelling from leaders to individuals. It's very much about storytelling and giving space for that between individuals that, that might be useful to build that trust in hyper teams. Yeah, 100%. But let me also challenge the bias of um, everything is data-driven. So when we are taking information through our senses, we are, um, our brain like automatically stamps them with emotion. As we have experiences, they get stamped with emotion and stored in our long-term memory. So think of it this way. If you take a photo on your phone and you swipe up, you can see the date, the location, the F-stop, the aperture, like all this information is automatically coded on that photo without you doing anything. Your brain does something similar when you have experiences. So when we are trying to make sense of something, our brain is trying to make these assumptions, it goes to this library of files, these experiences to say, we need to make sense of this. What have we experienced that can help inform this? So anytime you put up a piece of data, that's what's happening. And it is no different than putting up an ink blot. So if I put up a Rorschach test ink blot and had 10 people, 10 people would see different things in this image. You know, someone might see a squirrel, someone might see a unicorn, someone might see a skeleton. 
And it's because every person is making assumptions based on their experiences, which are different, which leads to different assumptions. Same exact thing happens with data. Even for what seems like the most basic set of data, we are all making assumptions about it based on our experiences and often not having the same conversation because we're having a different understanding of it and we don't realize it. If you don't take people through the story of data, you are not all starting at the same commonplace. And this is where you happen to get into the conversations about what's the source of this data? What's the validity of this data? Or you're listening to the person present the data and you're thinking like, do I believe them? Are they really telling me the truth? Are they manipulating this? And so while we think things are data-driven, we are all filtering through our own experiences with different that which differ. And stories can help guide people to the same starting understanding. We don't have to agree with it, but it allows for a different conversation. That's a really interesting approach, isn't it? It's a whole lies, down lies, and statistics thing, isn't it? That actually data is only factual at the at the point it's written down. As soon as a human reads it, there is an interpretation going on, uh, and it becomes opinion. So it's interesting that if you don't storytell through your data then you are, it's, it's, it's lost its purity the moment it enters all our, our brains, I suppose, isn't it? So yeah. that's, a, that's an interesting point. So um, I'm really obviously interested. What the, what the listeners can't see is over your left shoulder, there is a uh, copy of your book standing up there. So it's reminding me that you've got this book coming out. And so if you were going to take one or two snippets of the book and you're thinking about, leaders who might be listening to the to this podcast what are there a couple of beauty bits that you would say are oh, these are things like i'd want you to hear from this book we have touched on a couple of them one is that it's not enough to tell a story the way you do makes a difference and we we hit on a couple of those factory settings um there there are five that then become different choices or considerations that you have when you're building a story to help you think about what is important um the storytelling with data and how that is actually taking into account those factory settings these assumptions we're making and how we're making decisions that is so key um the chapter with storytelling and vulnerability I think that there is this natural hesitancy to use stories, um, even with all the things we've talked about, there is often this increase in cortisol that happens or adrenaline when we're getting ready to tell a story because our brain says this is new and different and it feels scary, uh, particularly if you're in front of a group. There's something about when your midsection is exposed, you feel threatened. This is why we like curl up in the fetal position to protect our, our midsection. So First is acknowledging that's true. Many people think when they see someone tell a story with ease that they don't have that. And that's not true. They likely do. And they just learn how to do it anyway. The craziest thing about storytelling and vulnerability is that the way you get through it is to tell a story. Whenever I work with a leader, I find an opportunity for them to tell a story so they can see the reward and the response they get from telling one. And so I think that recognizing that and learning how to quiet the voice in your head by being really clear on who you're talking to and who you aren't can make such a big difference. Fascinating. Fascinating. Great, great insight. Thank you. And um, we're kind of almost at the end of the podcast. And uh, um, this is a podcast called Tap Talks HR. So I should bring my HR friends into this podcast for a moment. 
HR leaders have huge responsibilities inside of organizations. Um, and one of them is actually helping to develop their talent, develop their leaders and everything. So if you are talking directly to the HR people who are listening now and thinking about how they can get storytelling as more of a key part of their culture, what's one piece of advice that you might give them at the moment? I think storytelling is an HR professional secret weapon. We see things perhaps in more um, acuity than others do, right? We sense when things are not quite where we want them in the culture. We see leaders that can do things differently to be more impactful. We see development issues. And any one of these moments are great opportunities to tell a story to broaden perspective or change the energy. It isn't just how do we create a storytelling culture across HR and in the organization. It is you can be nudging the individuals, the leaders and teams forward with different stories that change their thinking. Because I think sometimes these coaching moments that we we create the most of are profound opportunities for stories. In the broader organization, healthy cultures tell stories of what great looks like, great leaders, great teams, um, great projects, because when I can hear something that a really wonderful team did, that's going to help me think about, well, what do I do differently with my team? How do we incorporate some of those things? Or when we hear what a great leader does beyond the expectations for leaders around performance management, but we get some ideas, that's where we not only place ourselves in that, we think, what what do we want to take from that? When we create these opportunities and regular meetings to stop and reflect on mistakes and what do we want to learn from that or what has worked well for us, you are laying the groundwork for psychological safety in a place where it's okay to have these conversations. And not only is it okay, it's really important that we have these conversations. So I feel like in many ways, HR can help orchestrate all of these things by either asking for these stories, sharing these stories, or or prompting them in the organization. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think for me, that, that shows that storytelling also had a role in that learning from others. Part, but you need to also give people space for a reflection uh, as well to actually then think about, well, what have I heard this week and how has that impacted on me and what am I going to do differently? Um, and also, like you, you're used to the word nudge, because I, to me, that, that concept of one big story is not going to change the culture of an organization, but storytelling inside of an organization makes lots of little nudges, which gets you to where you need to go. So, so when I was at General Electric, one of my roles was a head of culture in a business for 90,000 employees in 150 countries. And I sent out weekly nudges to the people leaders that were, they were within an email pane so you didn't have to scroll forever. They included either a story or an idea and something to try that day or that week that are the, your job is really hard you were really busy. Here's some different things to keep front of mind to try. And it was very much that nudge that created that ongoing development. Something like that can be really impactful. That's great piece of advice as well. Uh, that's one That's one for free. Is that in the book as well? Or is that really uh, extra for, for the listeners? I don't think it's in the book, but that's for free for the listeners. Nudges are well, great. There you go. And, and we are out of time, unfortunately, in this podcast. And I knew this one was going to go rapidly fast because I'm so interested in the topic of, of storytelling. So 
And obviously, your book is going to be available in all those wonderful places where you can walk into the digital bookshop or go online and, and order it, et cetera. And just a reminder for everyone, it's called The Perfect Story, How to Tell Stories to Inform, Influence, and Inspire. But Karen, if, they, if people were interested in you, where do they need to go on the wonderful internet to find more about you? My website is the best place. It's my name, K-A-R-E-N-E-B-E-R.com. There is information about the book there, um, but visit the brain food section. This is my blog where every week or every other week, I share a story-based post and some tips and tools around storytelling, leadership, teaming, and culture. Fantastic. I love that brain food section. It's just, it's the name just wants me to go there and start reading. So, Karen, thank you ever so much for your time today. It's been thoroughly interesting. And um, I'm sure there'll be loads of people right now as they're listening to the end of this podcast, going on their mobile phones and finding their, their favorite bookstore. So, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. And so, that's about it. For this Tap Talks HR podcast. I, I hope you found the insights for Karen as fascinating as I have today. Thanks for listening to our to the podcast, and we'll see you again here soon for another episode. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.